What is great to have you with us this morning. You know, worship allows you to transcend your circumstances by retapping you into the mind of Christ. I don't know about you, but for me, often my state of mind is directly proportionate to my state of affairs. So if my state of affairs are going well, my state of mind is going well. If my state of mind is down, it's probably because my state of affairs was down. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, addresses this very issue. It's actually chapter 2 here, not 1, so I'll change that on there if you'll follow along. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. They also may be encouraged when I know your state, your state of affairs, how things are going. For I have no one with the mindset who has the state of mind like Timothy who will sincerely care for your state of affairs. And here is this idea. That there is a way that you can have a state of mind like Christ that Timothy had that will care about and transcend your state of affairs. And Paul's going to unpack that together in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we look at today. And I think what's interesting to me is that many times, one of the few places you see people whose state of mind transcends their state of affairs is when you go on a mission trip. So we've had a lot of mission trips recently. We had a team down in Cancun building homes. Okay, I'll show you a picture that they sent back here at the bottom. They came back and they're uh, building homes and uh, working in Cancun. And then this week, actually this is day two starting down in Belize, um, of our medical trip. I was on the phone with John Kirby this morning. And we had over 200 people that our village medical clinic saw in the first village. We did over 20 surgeries yesterday, doctors and nurses from our church. Isn't that amazing? And... Uh, they said one of the amazing things, the folks, who, especially those who have been on a trip before, that folks are getting tumors removed, uh, cleft palates fixed. And they said what was shocking to many of the nurses uh, who, or doctors who work in America is as soon as the folks woke up, the first thing they wanted to do is shake people's hand. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you for what you did. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You don't get a lot of that apparently in America. Oh, I feel terrible. Give me something. Let me go. That they've got this state of mind of joy. In fact, many of you may not know, but part of what we do in Belize is that we sponsor about 80 kids. Because once you get to uh, the beginning of high school, most people can't afford it anymore. Because it's government paid up until that point. And so for most kids, they go into the cane field if you're a boy or possibly go into prostitution 60% if you're a woman. And so we have 80 kids over the last few years for like $150 a year is all it takes to sponsor these kids. And so we as a church have been sponsored by 80 folks. Those of you who give financially, that's part of doing that. We expand each year. So they had a giant party yesterday. And part of that party was to celebrate. And 77 of the kids came who were sponsoring down in Belize. And so I was talking to John this morning. I said, wow, that's just day one. I can't wait to hear what happens tomorrow. And every year when they come back, they said, tell what's so striking, Chad, is these folks have nothing. They don't have medical. They don't have finances. Their state of affairs is so low. Yet their state of mind is so joyous. I know that for me, I got a chance to go to Africa recently. Here I am doing some balloon animals for the kids and just seeing their joy. Uh, we brought food to this family here. This is their house. Uh, their house is composed of, of you know, small logs that they put across. And then the walls themselves are made of a combination of dirt and manure that are shoved into the walls. They almost always have a bonfire going in there to stay warm at night. So just imagine the constant smell of smoke in your bed and, you know, cooking your manure walls. Yummy. And yet, the joy, the gratitude, it's just amazing. And for me, when I come back from a trip, I'm always reminded, why is it that there's certain state of affairs 
that I can't get a mindset that will transcend those. In fact, I think sometimes God puts me in certain state of affairs so that he can bring out certain mindsets that he wants to deal with, that he wants to work with me on. And maybe he does that with you too. I saw that uh, the last day of our time in Africa, I got a chance to go on a safari. So I was in the safari vehicle here and the top pops up so you can look around. We saw giraffes and we saw some hyenas. We saw these different animals and, and we came along and they said, we promise you, you're going to get a chance to see a lion. Uh, I sort of had mixed feelings about that. Sure enough, we come along and there comes a lioness right at us. She's 70 feet away. 50 feet away, 30 feet away, 20 feet away. And now I have a state of mind I didn't have before. The state of affairs of having a lion coming my way brought a certain state of mind of anxiety, fear. He gets closer and closer, and I kid you not, he sits down outside our door. They didn't close the top. That thing can jump four feet. We got an open top. I actually poked my head up and took a picture. I crushed our head. I crushed our head. I crushed our head right there to the line. Just to show you how close I am to him. Nobody seems nervous. I am. And this is, this is, this is not a pastor story. This is actually what I thought to myself. Well, if he does jump up here, what will I do? Well, I'll take my wife with me. Then I thought to myself, I don't have to outrun the lion. I just got to outrun that guy and that guy. That's a no-brainer. And I thought, wow, that's really what happens when I get put next to a lion. I start thinking to myself, right? I'm sure there's other people who think, if the lion comes in here, I'm going to fight him off myself and save the rest of the place. Not me. I was going to at least grab my wife, but we were out of there. And I think that's what happens. Many times God puts us in circumstances and it brings out certain things you didn't even know were in your heart until you get put in that circumstance. For me, my state of mind is often determined by that. And when things get difficult, you know what I find myself? I find myself surprised by my state of affairs. Even though the Bible says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. I pray resentfully. If you ever do this, it's this version of God. You know I don't deserve this. You know I deserve better. I've been being a good person. I'm in the ministry. Why am I not? Right? And I think I'm trying to manipulate God. You owe me kind of thing. But God's saying, Chad, I'm using the circumstance to bring out your resentment. Do you see you have resentment toward me? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's justified. No, no, that's what we want to talk about, not your circumstance. Sometimes I'm angry about my state of affairs. What was amazing about Paul and Silas, this is actually an a actual picture of a Philippine, uh, Philippine, uh, Philippian jail. It's probably not the one that Paul and Silas were in. But you put them in a terrible state of affairs. What came out of them was joy. What came out of them was thankfulness. What came out of them was worship. They had a state of mind that transcend their state of affairs. And that's what Philippians 2 is all about. God has come to provide us a state of mind, not a state of affairs. So we'll look at three characters. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul. And we'll see what this state of mind looks like when we recognize the needs of others, we empathize with the needs of others, but most importantly, we realize the source for the need of others. Let's begin with Timothy. We already looked at at the beginning. Timothy had the ability to recognize the needs of others. Paul says, I trust in the Lord to send you Timothy, and I'm going to send him to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one with this mindset. What kind of mindset? Someone who sincerely cares about other people's state of affairs. Now, what's striking about this is that Timothy didn't have a great state of affairs himself. He's hanging out with a guy in prison who's about to be killed. Talk about guilty by association. If, if the Roman Empire was about to kill somebody, I might want to keep my distance. But Timothy 
drew near to others, even when he was in danger. He sincerely cared for others. And Paul says, you know, all seek their own. Most people just look out for themselves. Lion shows up. They're all about themselves. But not the things that are Jesus Christ. But you know of, of Timothy's proven character of seeking other people's needs. As a son with his father, he served with me. An incredible ministry time together. He served with me, what? In the gospel. Now, this is so key. This is going to be the secret to the whole passage uh, section here is in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. The reason this idea of the gospel is so key is because this is the source for why you look to the needs of others. What is the gospel? It's that Jesus himself was in heaven in perfect harmony, perfect belonging, perfect joy, perfect comfort. And he could have basked in it forever and eternity. But instead, while he was comfortable, while he was wonderful, while he was joyous, he looked out and he saw the needs of others, us on earth. And he chose to step out of comfort and joy and step into heartache and pain and suffering and difficulty and brokenness and betrayal. And he did it for us. That's the gospel. That our Savior Jesus chose to see us in our needs greater than his need. When he says things like, Father, not my will, I would prefer not to go to the cross, but I'm going to put the needs of others ahead of my own comfort. And that is the motivation. That is the mindset that Timothy has of saying, because Christ put my needs ahead of his own, so too I want to put others' needs ahead of my own. This is hard. Because when you go through difficulty, the cameras in your life sort of turn to yourself, don't they? You think about yourself because you're going through difficulty. It's self-pity. It's, it's martyrdom. It's victimhood. It's stress. I'm stressed. Let me tell you how stressed I am. Timothy had the ability to look out for others' needs while he was in need because of the gospel. That means when you're in the middle of a fight with your spouse and you know you're right this time, you know they are so wrong this time, and you're getting heated up, you feel the adrenaline going. In that moment... Can you even have a mindset that can transcend your state of affairs and say, what does my spouse need right now? I I know they need me to tell them why they're wrong. No, no, no. What they need is maybe for me to be loving and caring. Maybe they need me to be respectful, even though they're not very respectable. Maybe I need to love them, even though they're not very lovable. That's what happens when you can put the needs of others ahead of your own when you least want to. Only the gospel can do that. If you're going through depression... You're overwhelmed with sadness. And it's not just sadness. I remember I went through a depression. It wasn't just the sadness. It was the fear that the sadness would come back. So even the moments of relief were, were ruined by the fear that, oh, that feeling, that darkness is going to come back. And you just get so self-focused on yourself and you sort of spiral downward. But there are those who have depression who put on this state of mind that say, yes, yes, I'm depressed, I'm sad. I wonder who else might be sad. I wonder who else might be hurting right now. How could I empathize and go out as they say, the best way to overcome depression is to go help your neighbor. Why? Because depression turns the, the cameras on you and you say, yeah, 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 but how can I turn them back to say, who could I help and empathize with because of the situation? Maybe you've got somebody who wronged you and you've told that story over and over again, what, what wrong they did, how terrible it was. And that's your mindset, how terrible it is. Are you really praying for your enemies? Praying that God would bless them? 
That's a totally change of mindset. And it's only motivated by the gospel. I've had that recently, this, this last uh, couple weeks. I've been motivated by the gospel to try and reconcile with my brother again. We haven't talked in four years. And so about once a quarter, I try another attempt to reconcile. So this was the week of another attempt. Now, I say that because I, I tried. We emailed back and forth. He actually returned my email. And I say, uh, he's as unreasonable as ever. His, his version of what happened four years ago is, is out of touch with reality as it ever was from my perspective. And I thought, well, maybe my view of what happened four years ago is out of touch. If, if he's smart, if he can be out of touch, maybe I can be out of touch. I was trying to recognize his perspective, his needs. But, but here's, it didn't work, you know. And so I'm like, okay, that's it. I've tried for four years, just be done with it. And I just felt God saying, what about the gospel? You see, I don't try and reconcile with my brother because it's the right thing to do. I mean, that sort of gets me like, oh, it's the right thing to do. Okay, I tried. I don't do it because the pros outweigh the cons. Family reunions have been so much better the last four years. So much less stress, so much less heartache. My life, maybe we should strike this from the tape, has been better without them in my life. So why would I try and reconcile with an unreasonable person? It's because that's what God does. Jesus tries to reconcile with those who are totally out of touch with reality. He tries to pursue those who, who are pushing against him. He tries to go after those who don't want to go after him. That's the motivation to say, because of what he did for me, I will do that for others. It's the gospel. So much more powerful than just, well, I'm supposed to. And that's what Timothy had. He could recognize the needs of others. Our next character could empathize with the needs of others. Yet I considered it necessary, he said, to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. This guy is a man's man. This guy is tough. He's been in the trenches with Paul. And I want to send him to you. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, you sent him to me and now I'm going to send him back to you. I'll tell you what was great about this guy. He could empathize with other people, enter into their difficulty. How did he do it? He ministered to my need. He had a longing for those who he was away from. I wonder how they're doing. I want to check in on them. I want to encourage them. He was distressed. He could enter into the stress of other people. Now, this is so amazing. Look at the next verse. He's distressed because you had heard that he was sick. You see, when I'm sick, I'm stressed about me. Because that's what happens with sickness. It's hard when you're sick to think about the needs of others. It's just so hard. Because your body aches, your mind aches, you're bending over the porcelain God, you're saying, oh, kill me now. Just kill me now. Right? It's very hard physically to think about the needs of others when you're sick. But Aphrodite had this mindset. Look, when he was sick, he is thinking about other people. He heard that <laughs> because you had heard that he was sick, he's distressed. He's worried that his sickness is causing his friends to worry. What a mindset. His state of mind transcends his state of affairs because even when he's sick, he's thinking, how can I encourage others? How can I help other people? And Paul does a throwaway line. I love this. For, you know, indeed he was sick, almost unto death. Okay, well, if you've got a reason to maybe have a little self-pity, if you've got a reason to be a little, hey, you know what, it's time for the spotlights to be on me, it'd be now. I'm dying here, people. But even in here... Epaphroditus is thinking about the needs of others. And he says, man, God had mercy on him, not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
So if you, if you read through the New Testament, you see Epaphroditus is this champion of the gospel, this champion of church planning. He risked his life constantly for other people. What's his motivation? What gets him moving in the morning? What keeps this mindset to overcome his state of affairs? I think we find the secret in his name. His name, Epaphroditus, means belonging to or devoted to Aphrodite's. Who's Aphrodite's? The Greek goddess of sensuality. The Greek goddess of eroticism. In fact, her in Greek mythology, her son is Eros or erotica, erotic love, or where we get the idea of Cupid. Comes directly from here. So you can imagine, when he was born, his mom and dad got together. Oh, honey, we're going to have a child. Oh, good. What should we name him? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I do enjoy going to the temple prostitutes. I know you do. And uh, what if we named our son belonging to or son of pornography and eroticism? What a wonderful idea. Now, think about that. This guy, his family lifestyle was devoted to, to, to lust, to, to these kind of sensual, erotic worship things. That was his whole life. And yet God rescued him out of that. And, and every time somebody says his name now, Epaphroditus, he's like, oh, that's right. I was in a lifestyle committed to one thing, and God rescued me out of it. Oh, he covered my shame, the things that I did, my families have done. Oh, the guilt that he's forgiven me of. He had a constant reminder of God's grace. And he said, because of what was done for me, what God did for me by rescuing me out of that, I want to do that for others. And so his whole life was motivated to empathize with other people. I want people to, to go after me the way some, I want to go after others the way someone went after me. That was his motivation, which is why Paul continues and says this. Therefore, I sent him to you more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I will be less sorrowful. And that's amazing. Again, Paul's about to die, could be beheaded any moment, might be burned at the stake. And he says, you know what would make me happier? Not losing your head. No, what would make me happier is if I could send him to you and he could minister to your needs too. Amazing. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. Why does he keep doing this? Why does he keep getting close to death? Why does he find a better job? Why does he find a more comfortable place to live? Because of the work of Christ. He says, I would rather do nothing else with my life than spend my time, my treasure, my talents, risking my life, giving my life, so other people could find what I found. It's the reason we have a two-service design. It's because we believe it's worth everything to do the work of Christ, that others can find what we found. The reason we have two services, the reason we have two different messages, the reason that, that, that you give of your time, your treasure, the talents, the reason that all of us give, uh, this last December, Beth and I get together and every December we go, okay, let's relook at our finances again. What's a, another percentage of our income we could give away to God's priorities? How do we adjust our spending? I love that every year. And it's always like, well, we could do this. Let, let's rethink. How do we give more and more of who we are to what God's doing in the world today? It's right here. We empathize where other people are spiritually and we say, how do I learn to converse and woo them into the kingdom? Do you have anybody like that, an Epaphroditus? Somebody you get around and they encourage you? Are you an Epaphroditus? Where you encourage others, that you think about others, that you find ways to build them up by being around them? I've had folks like that in my life. 
My friend Rich, he's a pastor down in Atlanta. Every time I call him, I just feel so encouraged. Yeah, I've been praying for you. Hey, can I pray for you right now? But yeah, I'm so excited what God's doing in your life. When I was in high school, I went to this church, First Evangelical Free Church, and every week I heard this pastor. His name's Carl Sutter. And uh, by hearing him speak every week, I got so encouraged. I got so built up. In fact, I really became a pastor because of his influence. I'm pretty excited about it because I haven't seen him in 20 years, and he's speaking today at the, at the second and third service. And he was the Epaphroditus in my life. So what, what about you? Do you? Are you that person to others, and do you have people like that in your life? Are you an Epaphroditus or an E-or? I mean, if I'd been Paul, I'd be like, Oh man, I'm about to die. And I only have two friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you want me to send them to you. Might as well. Everybody else has abandoned me. Right? Now, do you have an Eeyore in your family? As one comedian said, if you don't know who the Eeyore is in your family, you're it. <laughs> but this is what happens. And again, it's, there's an Eeyore in all of us. It's, it's when things get stressful, when things get sick, when things get difficult, the cameras go on yourself and you go, me, 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 me. Instead of saying, whoa, 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 the gospel, what God's done in my life. Jesus has done. I've got to keep my mindset on others because of what God did for me. I want to do that for other people. I want to supply what was lacking in service. So we recognize the needs of others. We empathize with the needs of others. But then Paul jumps into chapter 3 and says, but we've got to realize something very important. The source, the source, the motivation, the energizing for the needs of others. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Not in these other things. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. That's Paul's way of saying I'm about to repeat myself. For you it's safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. And beware of mutilation. Well, thank you, Paul. Now, what's that mean? There was a group of teachers, the Judaizers, who had come into their place and said, Jesus is fine, but it's Jesus plus obeying the law. It's Jesus plus uh, circumcision. It's Jesus plus something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is fine. Don't give up on Jesus. But just know that Jesus plus being a good mom makes you a little bit more acceptable to God than Jesus and being a bad mom. Jesus and having a good performance this quarter makes you just a little bit more lovable to God than Jesus and having maybe uh, might lose my job. Jesus plus circumcision is better than those Gentiles who haven't been circumcised. And Paul's going to say, no, 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 beware, beware, beware. Beware of putting confidence in the flesh. What you do, your works, thinking being a good person, that that is going to somehow make you more acceptable to God or makes you better than other people. He uses the phrase three times. He says, we are of the circumcision. I'm Jewish. We worship God in spirit, but we rejoice not in our works. We rejoice in Jesus and grace. We have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might, if you, if you want to compare resumes, I'll pull out my resume. You want to compare what you've done compared to the law, I'll compare it with mine. He says, let me show you my resume. If anyone else thinks that he should have, and there's that phrase again, confidence in the flesh, in works, I more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day, like the law says. I was of the stock of Israel. I came from the right tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, many of which had memorized the entire Old Testament. How are you doing? Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Spent my life devoted to the law, keeping the law. Concerning zeal, I was zealous all the time for the things of God, to the point at which I persecuted anyone who was off base. Concerning the righteousness which came from the law. Look at this word. I was 
blameless. And when I think of my resume and all the things I did, all the great things I did for God, but what things were gained in me, I ripped up and I counted loss for Christ. You see, when you add something to the gospel, you end up comparing. And when you compare yourself, it leads to either criticism or conceit. You either say to yourself, yeah, I don't, I don't drink. And there's people in the church who drink. And they're not quite as righteous as I am. And there's other people who say, those legalistic drinkers. I have the, not drinkers, I, I have the freedom in Christ to drink. And that makes me a little bit better than those, those people stuck in those old laws. You end up criticizing, comparing, feeling arrogant. I'm working on my prayer life. How about you? I'm in a Bible study called Working on Your Attitude. I see you're not working on your attitude. Right? (laughs) See, when you move from grace to confidence in the flesh, the good things you're doing become the thing that leads you to pride. Or you end up with criticism. You criticize, well, they don't try as hard. Oh, it came easy for them. Or you criticize yourself. Oh, I'm never going to be good enough. That's what, that's what idols do. That's what confidence in the flesh does. Give you an example. When Quinn was first born, he's probably one-ish. I went to see her had a tennis match. So I went to her tennis match, and all her tweener girlfriends came over, and they're like, oh, she wanted to introduce him to Quinn, and so I had little Quinn with me, and and Sierra wanted to hold him, so she's holding him, and all her friends are like, hey, could, could we hold him too? Sure. And so she's passing uh, Quinn around to all the girls, and they're just loving it, and she's just a proud sister, and and I'm a proud dad, and we're just having a great moment, and the kids are enjoying it, and then I turned and I saw the look from the mothers who were looking at me, passing my one-year-old around in such an unsafe way to these pre-teener girls who weren't handling him properly, and their skulls went down and like laser beams were shooting out. What a terrible father are you! And I would have felt guilty, except... I wish I could say it was the grace of God and my identity in Christ. (laughs) But because while they were beaming laser beams at me of judgment... I was thinking to myself, I am so glad I'm not like those overprotective, judgmental moms who are over there, who the kids are never going to do anything in their life because they're so pampered. I was doing the same thing. Jesus plus protective parenting makes me better than those people. Jesus plus let your kids maybe experience life parenting makes me better than them. Confidence in the flesh. And that is why the source of looking out for the needs of others, is Jesus. The mindset, the state of mind he offers is grace. I am acceptable by grace. I am obeying and I am trying to do everything I can to please him because I'm already pleasing to him in grace. The days I do well, I'm not better than I was or more loved than I was. The days I do bad, I'm so grateful that he covers my shame. The mindset is grace. He is the source for the needs of others. Which is why I think Paul's main point here is that God is providing a state of mind that can transcend anything. When we realize, when we recognize, when we empathize. And so Paul ends by saying, so here's how you get this. You've got to want the mindset of Christ more than you want anything. Or to put it this way, do you want Christ's state of mind more than you want a good state of affairs? Can I think about that for a little bit? Uh Paul says, I desire Christ's state of mind more than a state of affairs. And if if he brings a bad state of affairs in my life and that produces more of the mindset of Christ, bring it on. Because I want his mindset. 
I want his state of mind more than I want a comfortable life. I want his state of mind more than I want things to go well. It would be nice if we could have both. But if I have to have only one, please, God, give me that other-centered state of mind of grace that comes through Jesus. That's what I want more than anything. He says, I count all things, all things, loss, for the excellence of the mindset of Christ, the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I lost my reputation. I lost my fame. I lost my job. I lost it all when I decided to follow Christ, to be an apostle. But everything I lost, I count as rubbish. We're going to come back to that word. That I may gain Christ, be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which comes from the law, but that which is from faith in Christ, the righteous which is, and look at this word, from God. This is the gospel. God makes you righteous. He gives you righteousness. It's from God. God doesn't take saints. He makes saints. And when you get the righteous from God, you're made holy. There's no condemnation because of what He did. He goes, nothing compares to that. All the great things I did, which is better than your resume, by the way, He would say, is nothing compared to what I got. And now, whatever He brings into my life, whatever state of affairs occurs, I want to know Him, the power of His resurrection in my life, the fellowship of His suffering. God, if I have to suffer so I get more of your mindset, then I'll take it. Let me be conformed to your death. I want to die to lust and die to anger and die to resentment and die to thinking that you owe me. If by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. This word rubbish he uses came from over there in Macedonia. There were many outdoor bathrooms. This is a 12-holer. So you'd be walking along the street shopping and saying, I think I need to go to the bathroom. And you know, whether it was men or women, they all moved in herds in those days. Let's hang out in the bathroom. So you'd go sit down, and you know, you'd be sitting here, and your friend would be sitting here and here, and you'd be having a little chat while you're using the bathroom. Weird. <laughs> it wasn't just a two-holer. It was really nice, a 12-holer. And then the... Feces, the defecation that went out and it went all over the ground. That's the word that Paul uses when he says, I count everything in the flesh as feces, as defecation. He uses the strongest possible word for poo that I can't say here in church. Everything I've done that's not Jesus is like dog poopé, he might say. And that's why Jeremiah... Think of Jeremiah. It says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like rubbish. Stop putting your confidence in your status, your performance, your approval, your fame. How good a mom or dad you are. Put it in grace and that will be the motivation to be the kind of mom and dad and employer and employee you want to be. And it feels so weird, doesn't it? It feels so weird that people would go to the bathroom like this. And t- until recently, I would say it doesn't happen anymore. But, of course, here in the Olympics, we're seeing it more and more. Uh, because if we're seeing this over in Russia. This is happening a lot. But just think of that picture, how weird that is. That's how strange it should feel as a Christ follower to put your confidence in the flesh. It's like, well, that's weird. Oh, that's No, why would I do that? Why would I hang out in the outhouse? When I've already been positioned in the penthouse by God in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. It helps you realize who did it. Empathize with those who are hurting and recognize the needs of others, even when you yourself are in need. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're the ultimate example. 
of the high priest who can empathize with us because you've walked in our shoes. You've been against every temptation, every test, and you've succeeded in one. And we invite you now to come and live deeper in us. We want to be more and more convinced of your power. We want to be more and more convinced of, of your mindset. We want to be more and more convinced that you are everything we need and we need nothing else. And God, may your Holy Spirit convict us, nudge us, remind us when we put confidence in the flesh, we find ourselves conceited or judgmental or critical, to go back to grace. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. We will see you all next week.